Good morning. What a pleasure it is to bring the word to you today. I'm Pastor Joy. And the message you're going to hear today is something about which I love speaking about. In personal times of doubt and struggle, I go back to some of the things I'm going to teach, and it, the Holy Spirit uses to encourage me and to convict me and to call me. So I hope you're able to hear that with me today. As we begin, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your presence with us. May your spirit open our ears and open our eyes to see your glory and to hear our call that you have put on us since the beginning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Today is the second week in our fall sermon series, The Art of Being Human. And today I'm speaking on the question, what does it mean to be human? I think that this is a question that humanity throughout the ages of our history have asked. One great example of this question being asked is this painting by Paul Gauguin from 1897. If you've been to the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, perhaps you've seen this. It's a very large canvas, kind of a rough canvas. He was French, but he painted this in Tahiti. He painted this large canvas in one month, which is really amazing. He did it super fast. But what's sad about it is he was painting this canvas as he was grieving his beloved daughter's death. And his intention was to complete this as his life's work and then to commit suicide. And so he painted it, and then he drank arsenic, but he didn't die. And it's believed he went back to this painting afterward and painted the inscription in the upper left-hand corner, which translated is, where do we come from? What are we? Where are we going? And these words were the words he had heard as a young man in his catechism class, as his teacher asked them over and over, where do we come from? What are we? Where are we going? And you can kind of see the narrative of this. You read this, this canvas from right to left, just like the Hebrew scriptures. Interesting note. Where do we come from? We see the baby. What are we? This image of young adults striving. Maybe you see some symbolism there too. And then where are we going? In the lower left-hand corner, the aged woman. And he wrote these in French in the upper left-hand corner, but it's interesting to note that he did not use question marks. It's as if he had asked the question so much and not received an answer, there was no answer. And so the question was stated as a statement. Where do we come from? What are we? Where are we going? And I do think this is a question a lot of us might have. As I was preparing the sermon, I thought I'd ask my family what they thought about these questions. And my son said, Mom, that question of why am I here, I think about that all the time. I think about it in bed at night. My son is five. <laughs> and it, it brought me some joy because it would give this pastor's heart great delight to see her son become a philosopher, theologian. But that is true. In moments especially of pain in our life, when someone that we love dies, or when we've lost a job, and our life seems pointless. Or maybe when our kids have left home and what we had put in time and effort for years is, is no longer there living with us. Or those moments of quiet stillness when the electricity goes out and your television isn't working and you don't have internet access and you sit there in the silence. 
Where do we come from? What are we? Where are we going? This is a question so many of us have, I think. And often we are taught that we, the way you find the answer to this question is by looking deep inside yourself. I am the master of my soul. I am going to define who I am. But as Christians, as people who are Christ followers, I want to encourage us to know that it is not our job to look inside ourselves to figure out who we are. Who we are is defined by who God is, as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. We see this in some of the quotes from John Calvin, the famous bobblehead philosopher. And um, he says in his uh, classic book of theology, Institutes of Christian Religion, it starts out with this quote, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. And inversely, without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. As we look and learn about who God is and who God has revealed in Christ, we learn more about who we are. And as we learn about who we are, we in turn learn more about who God is. Simple example, I learned a lot more about who God is when I became a parent, right? When we suffer, we can learn more about how God has suffered in the Old Testament and some of the language he uses in the prophets. Without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. And without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. So I think many scriptures show us who God is first, and then we can, in turn, ask, who are we? So that's what we're going to do with this text today. So let's hear this again, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make humankind in our own image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals on the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. This part is a little poem, you see. God blessed them, and God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So as we read the creation narrative, as it's written in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2, and this might surprise you, there are other creation narratives throughout the, the First Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. There's a creation narrative in Proverbs 8. There's creation narratives alluded to in some of the Psalms. And there's also creation narrative in the book of Job. And if you look at all these together, what you start to see in repetition is some language of architecture. God is using language of architecture to describe the earth. We see this in Genesis 1. God separates water from water. In in Job 38, God is speaking to Job. He's kind of reprimanding him, and he says, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. God can be sarcastic. Um, who stretched a measuring line across it? Or on what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? Who shut up the sea behind doors when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? When we start to read these creation narratives as architectural descriptions, we start to see that what God is doing in the creation story is that God is making a temple for himself. This is an image of how ancient people understood and described some of the, there we go, 
some of the, um, the, the worldview of it. And this reflects some of the language you read in Genesis 1 and in Job 38. You see the waters above separated the, from the waters below. You see the foundations on the earth. And what this, you see the lights hung in the sky, right, to lighten up the temple. God is creating for God's self a temple. And then God goes, we read this in, in Isaiah, that God is going to rest, and heaven is his throne, and the earth is his footstool. God's temple, though, is different from other temples that people would have understood in the time this was written, primarily because people would build temples by themselves for the deity. Someone would go and build a temple. But you know what? As people who worship the God of all creation, we cannot build a building that holds God. God has to build a building for himself, to hold himself. And if you know science and how the universe is expanding, there is nothing we can build that can hold in God. So God has built God's self a temple. Now, from what we all know from building temples, because we don't really know very much because we don't live in a society that, for the most part, goes around building temples, but just take a guess. What's the last thing you do when you have completed building a temple? What's the last act? Dedication before that. Before you dedicate the temple, what's the last thing you do when you build a temple to a deity? You put the idol in. The last thing you do, you've built the dome, you've built the foundations, you've decorated it, you've hung the lights, you've put in some plants to make it beautiful. The last thing you do is you put in the image of the deity. And what does God do in our text today? He puts in the image of himself, men and women, to represent God's rule in, the, in this temple cosmos that God has created. We can't build a temple for God. Our God is too big. God has built a temple for himself, and he has set men and women as his representatives, his idols, his images, his selim, that's the, the Hebrew word in your bulletin today, it means selim or image. Sometimes that's actually used to mean idol, as in like idolatry. But we are that image. We are made to image God. This has to do with uh, bearing likeness, likeness of, semblance to, an idol. That's our job. So what has God done? God's built himself a temple, and he set the image in at last. And that image is us. This is what it means, my friend, to be made in the image of God. This theology that the, the church, this biblical theology that the church has affirmed for thousands of years, we have this in common with, with Christians and other traditions and other denominations, the Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters, Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, all stripes of Protestant. We all agree with this. Now, we do wonder, and there's a lot of debate, and I won't go into this, but about what does that mean? What does it mean for humans to be made in the image of God? Is that just simply something we can encourage our kid or our friend with when they have a bad day? Well, you're made in the image of God. Don't despair. I actually think that's fine, but there's a little bit more to it than that. And we can go directly to the text to see what it means to be made in God's image. So I have the same text that we looked at earlier, but I've done some uh, coloring of some of the phrases because there's some pretty big repetition here. 
God says, I'm going to set my image in this temple cosmos so that they can have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over all the animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth and the cattle. Use that. And then there's the poem with the word image uh, repeated. And then God does what he says he's going to do. He makes the people and he blesses them. And he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. And then there's a little abbreviation of all the yellow stuff and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Let's think together about ancient Hebrew manuscripts, which before it was printed, and we all have one in our pew, the Bible was. It was hand-copied. Paper was valuable. People didn't skip spaces in between words because it was so valuable. And so to repeat a phrase like this so close together is like tweeting in all caps. It's saying, this is really important. And so I think, what does it mean to be made in God's image? It means to have dominion, to rule. God, the great king, God has set up a temple cosmos and has put humanity in the middle of that temple to represent his rule, to rule, to reign. Not, we're not exactly like God, obviously, but God has made us in some ways and given us responsibility that is God-like. And this is a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for us. And I think we can look out into the world and see so many wonderful examples of humanity following this call of taking the natural stuff of the earth, animals, plants, minerals, and doing fantastic things with it. The Hubble Space Telescope. Artificial limbs that are better for running than an actual human leg. We have a little baby in our church, Luke Darrow. He was born at 24 weeks. And because of the way humans have ruled and subdued, Luke is alive and well. This is amazing. We have box mass in B minor. We have museums full of wonderful sculptures and paintings. We have, I'm sure we could all think of things. We have ice hockey. Someone had to think of that. We have bread that rises from yeast that someone got at some point and then started growing. I mean, if you start looking around the world, you can see so many examples of the work of humans imaging God. But as you look around, you will also perhaps despair because you'll learn about, we're not, we're not to this one yet, you don't have to read along yet. You'll learn about um, endangered species and polar bears who are losing their habitat as the ice melts, and 700,000 Rohingya refugees trying to escape ethnic cleansing, and 27 million slaves today, and 390 homicides in Chicago this past year, since January, maybe a few more since I looked this up, I don't know, and three of the largest mass shootings in history in the United States in the last 12 months, one at a church, and internment camps in North Korea, where Christians, as well as other people who are made in God's image, are held. And there is a soup of plastic garbage in the Pacific Ocean that is the size of Texas. We did that. The images that God set to rule his cosmos temple have desecrated it. We've done some good stuff. We've taken spray paint and sprayed it. We've punched holes in the ceiling. We have killed some of the plants that God set up. 
we haven't done a great job. We haven't always ruled well. And as Christians, we can look back to Genesis 3, and that helps us understand this. This is the story of the fall, the story of the serpent coming to Eve after God had given Adam and Eve this wonderful, beautiful garden with fruit to eat and given them one commandment, don't eat it at that tree. And the serpent comes to Eve and he says, if you eat of this, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. Like God. Eve is already like God. Eve was already made in God's image. She is already like God, and she already knows good. How could you not know good? She lives in this fantastic garden, beautiful like the Morton Arboretum, but then you don't have to buy lunch because it's just on the trees. <laughs> and it's never too hot, I'm sure, right? She knows good, but she doubts that identity. And rather than God being at the center, she takes more center than given and, and disobeys and eats. And this is how we understand sin as a virus, the virus of sin that began then, ushering in chaos and disobedience and violence and oppression and slavery and addiction and idolatry. This is the beginning of the sin story, right? But part of the good news of Jesus Christ is that we have been offered a new path back to kingship to restore our place in God's temple. Rather than staying up on his throne with his feet on the earth as a footstool, God came down incarnate in Jesus Christ and went into this desecrated temple and stood there and shows us how to be the people, the beings who image God in the way God wants. God came to dwell with us as a human, as Christ, who we call the King of Kings. You ever wondered who the of kings are? Does that mean like the other kings of the world, like Queen Elizabeth? It's us. Jesus is the king of us kings and queens and vice regents. Jesus is the new Adam, the one who succeeded where the first Adam failed, the first true human who shows us what it looks like to perfectly image God, to make a way for us to say, yes, God, I want to partner with you in this call, in this regal, royal call you've given me and dignified me with. The Apostle Paul calls Jesus the first Adam. And Jesus Christ put on the mission of human identity, imaging God, back on track through his obedience. Not only are we rescued from sin by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we are also put back in authority over God's kingdom to be the kings and queens God intended us to be. This is why when Jesus was ministering, he went around saying, the kingdom of God is among you. He's ushering in a new kingdom with himself as the main king and us as the, the response of little kings and queens. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 5, if because of one man's trans trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Reign in life. This is royal, regal, dignifying language. And this, my friends, this is the grand story of God, that Jesus became what we are. He became human so that we may become who God intended us to be, vice regents reigning with him in partnership, reigning with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the grand story. 
Now, you might think, this is great, but I uh, spend five hours a week dropping and picking my kids up from school and um, managing a home or going to a, a job in Chicago, and I can't be like, hey, you guys, I'm the king now, right? This is different. This is being a king like Jesus is a king. And we all, there's so much sphere of influence that I see around me today. You are able to be a king and a queen in the vocation, in the work God has already called you in. So parents who stay at home with their kids, you can, the spirit can empower you to image Jesus as you parent so the children will see Jesus through you. Those of you who work in business and finance, you have the authority to make choices that are not just going to benefit yourself and the community, but benefit the whole world, benefit the created world that God calls us to have dominion over, benefit the natural stuff of this cosmos that God has created as his temple. And if I, we, this, this is not a place to give specific instructions for each person because it is going to totally look different. But the role of a pastor is to equip people for ministry where they are. And so Pastor Simon and Pastor Lars and Pastor Colby and I would love to sit down and discern with you how God might be calling you to reign in your sphere of influence. This is an amazing and dignified responsibility. One great example of people reigning with God and helping others recognize their identity as image bearers and helping empower people to to live and be that image in the world is the organization Young Lives that's part of Young Life. I had opportunity this week to sit and listen to some of the leaders of this mission talk about their work. Young Lives is located in Chicago and their ministry is to young, unmarried, single moms ages 17 through 19. And they help equip these moms to be followers of Jesus, to be good parents, to finish school so they have an education. And they also offer opportunities that are fantastic. For instance, if you have a baby, you really can't go to youth camp. But they have a special camp that they've partnered with, the Young Life Camp. And it's special just for these moms. So the moms get on a bus with a kid, and they drive up to Michigan. And when they arrive and the doors of the bus are open, they are met by a parade of strollers and an adult behind each stroller because they offer childcare to each mom, one-to-one ratio. So another adult will love the child so the mom can learn about Jesus and have you know, fantastic camp fun. This is one way God's world is being stewarded by Christians. And there are millions of examples that we can add to that. And so, my friends, you're made in God's image. Through the work of Jesus, that has been restored. And Jesus is calling us to be workers in his kingdom. And this is a dignified, dignified opportunity. Maybe when some of you were little, you imagined what it would be like to be a king or a queen. You're a king and a queen. But we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, the servant king. And we have hope in his work that's going on now and that will go on in the future. Let's pray together. And so I invite you to respond with a prayer of the church. This is, you'll find this. This is Psalm 8, which Milo read for us at the beginning from number 783 in your hymnal. And we'll read this responsively where it says response and it has the music notes. Don't worry about that. This is a retelling of the creation story and of the deep dignity that God has given humanity. So I'll read the light print 
And I invite you to read the bold print, and I invite you, too, to stand as we participate in this great story that God has given us. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark because of your foes. When I look at your heavens, at the work of your fingers, at the moon and the stars that you have established. Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. All sheep and oxen, the birds of the air, whatsoever passes along the paths of the sea, O oh Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen.